Please leave a message after the tone. Yeah, when I think about that word reconciliation, I really go back to the heart of God's plan and really just the purpose of why he sent Jesus to bring that reconciliation to the world, to us as humans on a very holistic level. I don't know. It just, I think then I I get turned back to Jesus and to who Jesus is and what he's calling us into. Then practically speaking, for me, reconciliation looks like unity and how can I be loving the people around me? How can I be seeking the heart and the story of the people around me and getting to know them and building relationship with them and just loving them and just, I guess, opening my, my eyes to see them how God sees them. Reconciliation. What does this mean to you? This is the Journey with Care podcast, where we navigate honest conversations about faith, culture, and loving our neighbors. I am the host, Melvina Gabosh, and I am an Indigenous lover of Jesus. Welcome back to another episode of Journey with Care. I'm your host, Melvina Gabosh, and today I have the privilege of sitting down with one of my co-workers, Jen Mason. I invited her on to the podcast to share a bit of her story, her wisdom, her knowledge. Um, she's an awesome storyteller, and I am so excited to have her join Journey with Care. Hi, Jen. Hi, Malvina. Hi. <laughs> it's good to have you on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. You are welcome. So I've been working with you for about two years at ICYA, and I've heard some of your story, um, some of your upbringing, you know, how... God found you, where he found you, and what he's done in your life and in your family and in your ministry. And so that story of of reconciliation, that story of almost like a redemptive um, story that you have, I just thought it would be such an awesome story to come on to Journey with Care and you just share that with us. Um, one of the questions I do ask each guest that comes on is, uh, what does reconciliation mean to you? Um, Jesus is at the center of everything because of how real he is for me. And so everything always comes back to my faith. And so for me, it stems from, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a home where Jesus was in the home. But what I learned was to know him well, to be a good Christian meant that I couldn't be me. It meant that I had to learn how to look like someone else, to act like someone else, to be like someone else in order to be a good Christian. And it's been a really long journey, but for sure, actively, at least the last 10 years, God has just showed me that all of that was wrong and taught me how to love myself. And that in that, I am Indigenous. He has intentionally made me Anishinaabe and all that that entails and that he didn't make any mistakes. It wasn't, oops, I did this. You got to figure out how to make, how to make it better and do you know, he, he intentionally chose for me to be Anishinaabe. Yes. And he has been teaching me that. So my journey of reconciliation, it began with decolonizing my mind because what I was taught was done so well yeah. <laughs> that I rejected all of the things that were associated with me being Indigenous, with being First Nations. And, and he's like, nope. I knew what I was doing when I made you, and and I want to to be proud of that. And so, um, yeah, he's taught me to love myself and to be proud of the fact that I am Anishinaabe. Yeah, so he's so good that way. Yeah, you know, 
it reminds me of, you know, a little bit of my story. And I, mean, I don't know if it, I, I can't speak for all Indigenous people, right? But I think that each and every one of us go through is that stigma around, you know, being Indigenous and, you know, not wanting to be put into a box or into a category or, but when we become uh, one with Christ, he teaches us how to love ourselves. Mm -hmm. He teaches us how to trust him that he doesn't make mistakes mm -hmm. because he doesn't make mistakes. Right. He created us who we are. He created a strong indigenous women. Yeah. And so, and you are, you are a strong indigenous <laughs> woman. You have guided me a lot through the few years that I've, I've known you. Why don't you tell me a little bit about like the community you've, you come from, you originally come from. I grew up in Red Lake, which is in Northwestern Ontario, which is a town. It's as far north as you can drive you around. And so then it's the flyout reserves around it. That's they're in and out, right? So there was lots of Indigenous people there growing up. And it is a place that is not nice for, <laughs> it's not easy for an Indigenous person to live. And so, so I grew up a lot of, with a lot of that. But I also, I had a really rich home and I didn't realize that until very recently where God was just showing me some things. But I, I was raised by my grandparents, my 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 mother's parents raised me. That's who mom and dad are to me. So I have very different parents than my my mother and her siblings did. Because when I came home to live with them, my dad told me later, he said that he decided he didn't want another generation of his children to grow up the way that his children had because there was um, alcohol and there was violence. They didn't know how to parent. My mom went to, she attended residential school for eight years. And my dad grew up on the trap line. He didn't have formal education. He didn't have, but there was the same alcohol and violence in the home. And that was what he learned, that he grew up around the Red Lake area. There was a lot of things that they encountered. And so both of them, even though he didn't go to residential school, he actually didn't go because his mother married a white man. And so she was no longer considered to be mm -hmm. Indian. She was, she had to give up all of that. And so then her children were not, but it doesn't mean they didn't face the racism that goes with it. Yeah. They're just getting in change. <laughs> right. <laughs> they didn't, and their language didn't change in there. But they lost the quote-unquote benefits that went along with being Indian status. Anyways, sorry. So because of their upbringing, because of, of the things that they had endured, because they were First Nations, they opted to not teach any of us the language because they wanted to keep us safe from that persecution that they had lived yeah. with. But they spoke it in the home. So I heard it all the time when I was young. When I came to live with them, at six months, my dad decided, I'm not going to drink anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. That he didn't want another generation of his children to live with that. So he quit drinking and thereafter found a overcomers group that was through the, um, at the time, it was probably Northern Light Gospel Mission that was, that was up in Red Lake and the surrounding communities. The name has changed a few times since then. It's still up there. So he found an overcomers group and there found Jesus. And so I grew up in a home that, that had Jesus in it. My mom, when I was young, she didn't become a Jesus follower until I was seven. But she always went to church, she put me in the Catholic school. She went because that's what she was supposed to do, because that's yeah. what she learned in the residential school. I mean, the, the things are so long lasting. This week, I was thinking about my mom. She didn't talk much about the residential school. She didn't she, in fact, said, well, it wasn't that bad. But she would tell us things. It's like, no, mom, that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> but for some reason this week, I was thinking about the fact and what was done to her there. And in her mind, that's just the way it was. But when I was young and she would bathe me, 
she would try to scrub the brown off of me because that's what was done to her. And I remember having where I would get into the tub and it was so scalding hot that my skin would go bright red and it would take me a long time before I could fully submerge into water because it was just too hot. And that's, that's what was learned. That's what she did because that was what was done to her. And I think, what a, what a thing, right? Like what? And that's just, that's not even considering the horrific things that happen and whatever. But anyway, these are the things that shaped our home and our upbringing and, and why they didn't really know how to parent. But they found Jesus. And so I had very different parents than my mother and her siblings did. That being said, they still didn't know how to parent. Yeah. And then I got told a different thing. I got told to be, you know, you're supposed to go to church and you're supposed to, you're supposed to follow God's rules. And you're, you know, it was very, very strict. There's, this is the only way yeah. that she learned in school, right? But now that was wrong. This is Jesus. He's right. But it still had the same, yeah. <laughs> it still had the same tones because she couldn't unlearn what was done, right? Like that was just her mentality. And, and dad too, the things that he had encountered, this was so much better that he immediately, there was no questioning what they were saying because it was a good thing compared to what he had lived, right? So, so when they said, you have to put away all these things, to him it made sense. Yes. Because what he came from was harmful and it was. But with that then, I remember as a kid, oh, your uncle, your whoever, so-and-so got, has accepted Jesus. We need to go to their house and we need to have, we need to clean it. We need to have a, we need to burn the stuff and we need it. So indigenous paintings mm-hmm. and, you know, artwork or dream catchers or anything. It's art. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just art. But because those were symbols of our, our indigeneity, those were evil things. Yeah. So that's what our, now we've found Jesus, it's good. But this is still what we're being told. So that voice of God is love is still, <laughs> I love you, but only if you get rid of all of the, all of the, that makes you, you. You know, you sharing your story about, you know, I've, I've shared mine in the past that for many years, I didn't understand it until when they found the bodies, the 215 in Canloops a couple years ago. I was, I was scrolling through, through Facebook one night when I was home, you know, winding down scrolling and I, I came across a story came across the story of um, a woman that would have been my mom's age and my mom passed away when I was 17 and we just had this just you know unhealthy relationship for many years and it was because of the things that ha- were done to her and I didn't know this and you know God is so good and he heals you in stages and he heals you know like he only does what as as much as you can handle in that present time right and he has that grace and, and gentleness. So, you know, I was reading this story and this this woman was sharing about her time in residential schools and that the nuns would wash her skin with Javix. Mm-hmm. And when you're sharing that, you know, my mother used to do that to me. And, you know, I'm a darker skinned Indigenous woman. And I didn't know for many years what she was doing. I didn't know what I didn't like. I just knew that that's what she did. And she would wash me and she would say these things and you know, and so I grew up being ashamed of being dark. I grew up ashamed of being the color that I was and and almost in, in some sense feeling like, well, yeah, feeling that it was wrong, feeling that this negative stigma to it or that light, was, well, lightness was beauty. 
And what was wrong with me? Why yeah. should, why she did that to me? Like, like, what did I do? What did I do? Like, why, why, what's wrong with my skin? What's wrong? You know, like, uh, and then you carry this, this negative image of yourself around. Right. And I gave my life to the Lord when I was up 10 years ago. And, um, only then, you know, a couple of years ago, he, he healed me from that, but he had to show me where that came from. He had to show me that generational trauma, mm-hmm. that generational curse that happened way back then to my grandparents, which then taught my parents and then carried it on to me. And, you know, but God is so good. He's just full of grace and, and gentleness. And, and so when he was showing me this, he released a healing in me. And I was able to to look at my skin and think it's beautiful. You know, like I used to wear makeup uh, when I was younger. That was like four shades too light on me. But it was that that thing that was planted in me, that seed that was put in me, and that curse that was put into me when I was a child. And, you know, but since then, I, I've I've been able to see myself and learn to love myself and learn to love the beauty of my skin color, my tone, you know, like mm-hmm. that us as Indigenous people, we're beautiful, you know, we're beautiful. Other models and actresses and all the people that are they to pay be the, for our skin, pay <laughs> lots of money and put their health at risk in order to do it like, you know, and 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 we're trying to get rid of it. <laughs> we're trying to get rid of it because that's what we were told to do. Even yeah. though, yeah, it's so bizarre. But I mean, you know, he sees those things. We got no clue, but he, he doesn't want to leave it there. And and even is gracious to show us what it is and why. Yeah. You know, we might not have any clue, but he knows it's there. That there's spiritual bonds there that need to be broken. That need to be broken. That need to be broken. And I think, you know, in terms of, of the people as a whole, as the church of, as a whole, there's those bonds throughout and whether you're on settler side, whether you're on First Nation side, whether you're, God doesn't want any of those things there because kingdom family is bigger. Mm-hmm. And he said that every nation and every tribe and every tongue, that we're meant to be in kingdom. We're meant to be with him. We're meant to. And he didn't say, when you all look the same, you can make it here. Yeah. Right? Like, But that without understanding, without knowing where those things come from and have been passed down those are the things that bind us those are the things that are still in the church and we can't our finite minds try to understand them we're like well i didn't do those things or i didn't know about those things so i'm not but the reality is god cares about the generational curses and the things that need to be broken because they're not of his kingdom yeah you know during that time when that happened i didn't know that i had unresolved unforgiveness for my mother you know, and I feel like he had to bring me to a place to be able to understand her pain and her mm-hmm. trauma so I could forgive her, you know, because I don't even think that she understood it. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't even understand why she was angry, why she was hurt, why she was, you know, unforgiving. You know, I grew up in a very abusive home. And so physically, mentally, emotionally, verbally, it happened every day. And I don't even think she knew where that anger was mm-hmm. coming from, where that hate was coming from. But God, I know that he doesn't want me to pass it on to my children. And so I was, I was sitting there and I was thinking that day when I was reading that, that story from this, this woman that was sharing. And I just, tears just started to fill my eyes. And I imagined my son, because my son is darker skinned as well as me. 
And I, I just imagined him and I could never, ever imagine sitting him in a tub and washing him or scrubbing his beautiful skin with bleach, yeah. you know? And I'm just like, okay, God, like, thank you. Thank you for showing me so I could forgive that generational curse that was meant to destroy. These things were meant to destroy our people. Yeah. They were meant to, to put that unforgiveness, to put that shame, to put those things on us. Mm-hmm. And God, you know, he's so gracious that he just peels it back. If we're willing, he'll peel yeah. those layers off. But it takes us having to want to, you know, ask him. Like, you know, me asking, well, why did this happen? Mm-hmm. Why do I feel like this? Why why do I get angry when this trigger happens? Why do, where does that come from? Because that's not me. So where does that come from? Yeah. You know, and since I've been starting to ask the Lord that and ask him these things when, when something triggers me or, you know, something angers me, because we're human, right? We're human. We have these moments. We have these, you know, um, these fleshly experiences, <laughs> you know, we got feelings. Yeah. Right. And then when we're honest with them and we're like, okay, Lord, I didn't like the way that I, I reacted to this. I didn't like the way this made me feel. So what is that? Mm-hmm. What is that? And for my story, I feel like it goes back to residential schools. It goes back to what the enemy sent to steal, kill and destroy. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, maybe what you have experienced in your family about residential schools and, and I guess maybe how God is using you to change the narrative in your family? Even without understanding the full weight of it, I've always been aware that residential school happened. So for me, like I said, my mom went and then my mother's generation to the next generation, they didn't go because my dad's mother mm-hmm. lost her yes. status and then we didn't. So they were, they were spared of those things. Because until the 80s, part of our family wasn't considered to be Indigenous. Um, <laughs> and then Bill, and then Bill C31 happened and that changed and we're all, because we, we were, we're, we yes. are, we always mm-hmm. were, but legally those things happened. But anyways, one of my uncles, the one that I was closest to when I was younger, his wife, she has like eight sisters. They all went to residential school as well. So she is 14 years my senior. So not long ago, you know, not long and her, their mother had gone and whatever. And so there was, the pieces were far more close to me. And then Jason and I have been together since, um, since we were 13 and his parents both were in residential school and all of his, his aunts and his uncles and Jason went to a day school. He was fortunately for him, he went much shorter. It was in his first couple of years. And he says, I don't really remember the school. So, you know, as kindergarten grade one or whatever, he said, I don't really remember much about it. And I didn't endure physical things, he said, but I will never, ever forget how they made me feel. Mm. You know, the things that he was told and that just in being there, that he was just made to feel nothing, less than nothing that, you know, like that he's problematic, that he's not even just nothing. He's, you know, anyways, um, so it's always been really, really close and, you know, that's a blessing and God could use it. Figuring things out. There was a narrative. There was a close story for me, but all of those things impact how I relate to my children. You're talking about, I'm much fairer than you. I, you know, and, and in my house and my, of seven of us, I am, I am the lightest. Yes. And, <laughs> and I've noticed. That. Yes. <laughs> and the kids and, and the kids over the years, my son is 17 today, and he's the oldest. And over the years, they've talked about that. And they've talked about, like, 
the different range of skin colors that we have. And there was moments, you know, where there was comments about, Mm -hmm. oh, you're getting so brown, are you? And, you know, kind of teasing one another. And, And so we sat and we had conversations and we're like, what's the problem with it, you know, and looked at all of us and look at our own rainbow in our family. And I've intentionally tried to teach them that there is beauty in it and that there was no mistake in it. And, you know, they're going to have their own journeys, but, but they heard that, you Mm -hmm. know, that summer you're kissed by the sun and your beautiful brown skin is coming out because there's a definite change and they get much darker. And, but for me, somewhere those things are always in my mind, you know, and not wanting to not wanting them to have the the feeling of nothingness mm-hmm. that I had. And God taught me all that he made me to be. And I'm, and I'm so grateful because he is gracious and he's patient to do that. Through it, he's given me the ability to try and never let them hear that, you know, there's, there's anything wrong with it and whatever. We have enough other things to, to deal with. I mean, because the reality is they are very brown and it is a hard thing to be. Even in our church, where it is very, very culturally diverse and there are many different people from different places and we look different and whatever, we, my brother's family, who are also much lighter, are the only indigenous people, you know, and, and they see these things and they, you know, and, and then there's life. At 12, I talked to my son and, I, you know, you have non-indigenous friends, you spend, you know, the closest ones that he's to and I like, when you are out, if anybody gets into mischief, if anybody, if you guys, if police want to stop mm-hmm. you, ask you what you're doing, if you want to, you cannot mouth off. Yes. You cannot run. You cannot, you must stand there and do exactly what they say and speak when only way, you know, like only answer what they're asking and don't, because the reality is what happens to your friends who have white skin will be very different. What happens to you mm-hmm. when you have brown skin, you know, this is Canada. And I, in the last five years, intentionally taught my son, do not do the wrong thing. Yeah. Because you could get shot and killed. Yes. For nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's just the reality that we live in, mm-hmm. right? Me and my family, we, we recently, a couple years ago, moved out of, I guess, the central area like mm-hmm. into a suburban area. And we on our block, we were the only Indigenous mm-hmm. family. So in the, in the school that they, they transferred to... There was just a lot of white people, right? Yeah. So my 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 son started talking to a white girl. And you know, they're getting close and they're getting to know each other. And he he wanted to hang out with her. And anyways, long story short, he ended up hanging out with her at her house one afternoon, which he felt guilty and he told me about it. I kind of caught him in it. But anyway, so he he, you know, he, he came, he came forward, told me about it. And and the reality of that was I had to sit down with him. And tell him, you know, my son, like, you are an Indigenous boy. And so how do you think that would have happened if her parents walked in? Mm -hmm. What could have been the narrative? What could have been, you know, how they could have viewed that situation? Or if they called the cops or, Mm -hmm. you know, said anything. Like, you know, I said, you have to consider those things before you put yourself in those situations. Mm -hmm. So we had to have a really real conversation about that and about, you know, when you're out with your friends and most of his friends are, are, are Caucasian, they, mm-hmm. you know, that's the school he goes, to, that's the neighborhood we live in and he fits in and, you know, he, he can make friends very easily, mm-hmm. you know, I said, but you are different. Mm-hmm. So you have to know that you're different and remember that you're different. Mm-hmm. 
And yes, if if police happen, if cops are called, don't run, don't do this, yep. don't do that. You know, use your manners, be at, you know, the best of, you know, your attitude to them. But don't put yourself in situations yeah. where a narrative can be mm-hmm. painted a different way about you because you're Indigenous. You know, and that's just the world that we live in. And, you know, it was sad to me as a parent, as, you know, a believer, as a, a community minister, as, you know, who who I am, like, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my life and in my home, to have to still have that conversation with my son. Those are hard conversations. And so you did share that you know, you and your brother's family are one of the only families that are Indigenous in your church. How is, how is that for you guys? Um, our church loves Jesus, loves the Word and worship and prayer, and, and those are things we value. And I know that God has placed us there. We have been there six years, and I still feel like we're new. I still feel like we're, we're the visitors just coming in. And yeah, I don't doubt, I don't doubt the love. I don't doubt that, that God is centered, that Jesus is central. And there's a, I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. You know, it was like, okay, God, like, these are all Jesus people. We are all kingdom people. I don't care about skin color. I don't care about, these are Jesus people. These are my family, but there is something. The conclusion that I've come to the, there was a moment, you know, in, in, in prayer and my time with God and whatever. And there is a difference between being ethnically diverse and culturally diverse. And our church is very, very ethnically diverse. And they are thinking it means we are very culturally mm. diverse and not understanding the difference in those things. Because there's still a lot of how do we do this and how do we how do people be themselves when it comes to culture? Because there are pieces, well, it's against God. And I mean, it's it's been said for so long. You have encountered very recently voices that said they are evil, meaning us as the people. You cannot do the ceremonies. You cannot do the, you know, you can all of these things is evil. They are evil. That is still the voice coming from the church at times today. Yeah. Far more prevalent than we would like to admit. And the reality is that is against God because God made me what I am. Yes. So how can I be evil? Yes. And yes, there are pieces where somebody has done wrong with the things and it might be focused on the wrong thing. That doesn't mean that everything they're in is inherently evil. You know, one of the the common things and and was a big deal for you and I is a drum, the traditional drum. You know it and if it was made by Yamaha. <laughs> it would probably be on payments. It's not on the payment plan. Just <laughs> and it would be in every church and it would be like, look, at me, this is the greatest thing and whatever. It is a tool. It is not something that is inherently evil. And can it be used to do the wrong things? Yes. So is the Bible. Mm-hmm. We love and value the word and it is alive and living and active. But people can twist the words and do the wrong things and create residential school. Yes. And, you know, it, it isn't a stretch to think about how many places and ways the word of God gets twisted. It doesn't mean the word is wrong. It doesn't mean the word is evil. Yet when it comes to us and living in North America, you know, the church still primarily looks at us and the things that make us us. The as thing, evil. As evil. And they're tools. And do we need to be Jesus to people and to say, look, that this is what he really is. And maybe this 
this, these ideas that you have are missing something? Absolutely. But that's across the board. It's not specific to us as Indigenous people. I think we're talking about reconciliation. I think when it comes to the church, when it comes to the to, to kingdom family and what we're meant to be one body of Christ, <laughs> we're still very guilty of segregation and of seeing black and white where we should only see God's people. Yeah. And are we meant to to teach one another or do we need to, are there things where people might be not understanding and, and doing a wrong thing? Absolutely. That's not exclusive to us as Indigenous people. Paul told us not to get stuck on things, right? Like he said in regards to eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Mm-hmm. For him, I can do it. It doesn't make any difference. You know, he's a strong, strong conscience. He knows what that God is bigger than all of that and that doesn't relate. But if it is a stumbling block, if it is going to cause my brother who is weaker to fall, I'm not going to do it. And those are the things we need to focus on. It's not what you're doing per se that's the problem. It's where Christ is in our life. And how you're doing it. And how you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was um, the situation that you're referring to was a very difficult situation to have to be a part of and to encounter I don't even know how to describe what had happened, but viewing these people as as Christians and and seeing them as you know like they're supposed to be loving and caring and accepting and and nurturing and you know all these characteristics of Christ, right? And then being being put in a situation and told that that my people, who I am, who God created me to be as a nation that we were evil, mm-hmm. that we are evil, that the things that come with our culture, the the art, the, you know, the beauty of, of who God has created us to be is evil. Mm-hmm. And that they were, they're put in charge or they're, they have to follow the word of God and the teachings and to teach us that who I was created to be was wrong, was wrong. that I'm supposed to be like this. And, you know, I think that's what I think residential schools did to our people. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of a lot of Indigenous people don't like the mm-hmm. gospel. You know, they don't like the gospel because we were taught we were wrong. We were taught that we were we were mistakes, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. and God doesn't make mistakes. And and so that was a very hard situation to to be a part of. And and I had spoken to you the day after our to hear that these Christian people are people that are claiming Christ-like to say that in this present day, in this present time, to still view Indigenous people as evil. as evil. Not even what we're doing. The people. The people. The yeah. people. And that just hurt. It was like God showed me how our Indigenous people have felt for generations. You know, because I, I feel like I've, I tried to like, take myself out of that narrative. Well, I'm not that. It doesn't matter because I'm a Christian. Yeah. And God sees me, you know, and like as though because I have this and I'm holding to this, I can set that aside. Mm-hmm. But the reality is he doesn't want us to set a, set aside who we are because he made us who we are. Yes. You know, like it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't like, oh, well, we'll figure out how to fix you. It, he, he did it purposefully because we are made on purpose for a purpose. You were talking about artwork and, um, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, Jay and I moved down to Southern Ontario to uh, First Nation down there. And the reserve is on an island on the St. Clair River. It is 
swamp. And while I was there, so I was still very, I was like, okay, learning that it's okay that I am brown. <laughs> like I said, God has been really patient and really, um, but there was, you know, starting to, starting to understand who I am. And, but while I was there, I still had all of those hesitancies and, oh, you know, this person has a dream catcher or whatever. Mm -hmm. During that time, living on that island that was entirely swamp, the island is full of sweet grass. God put it there. God created <laughs> it, God. But these people who had nothing except for swamp in order to make a living for themselves and to care for their families and to, to have life and sustainability and food, um, they had ducks, like duck hunting. So they did, they did guiding and fishing because they live on the river. So, they, so lots of them either did fish and, you know, that was ate it, sold it, whatever. Or they did guiding and tourists would come and they would take them out fishing and they would take them out duck hunting or whatever. And they had sweetgrass. Mm -hmm. So during that time while I was there, when I, you know, the people that I, that I was close to and like lots of them, they go and they pick. So, so the different, the different sources of income, some of the young people go and they pick the sweetgrass and they clean it and they cure it. And then they, sell it to somebody who's going to, you know, braid it and sell it in their store or they or they sell it to the artists. And then the artist takes it and they make dream crutches out of it, or they, you know, all of the, all of these different things. And in that moment that obviously it wasn't a moment, but I mean, during that time, God showed me that this thing that for so long I've been told this art that is evil and that we shouldn't have anything to do with and whatever, and is going to send me to hell. Um, <laughs> is actually God-given ingenuity. They were put over here in the middle of a swamp with nothing and said, this is the land that you can have. This is where you need to live. This is where you need to stay. And all they have is this grass. <laughs> and they make a living. And how are you going to use it as a resource? Right. Right? Like, like that's that's what it is. Like yeah. our, what I have given you, how are you going to yeah. use it as a resource? And, and they make beautiful beautiful creations and functional things like making sweet grass baskets and whatever there was and simply for art and some like you know and in that moment i was like why how could anybody fathom that this is something against god when in reality the craftsmanship and the creativity all that goes into being able to do that and the and the brains to look let's turn this grass into something let's turn this mm -hmm. that grows in swamp yeah. into our livelihood that is something that brings glory to God. That is something that glorifies God because look at who he created us to be, what we could do with virtually nothing. Yeah, with so little, right? Yeah. The resilience in just creating something out of nothing, mm -hmm. right? So there's so many different, I don't know how to say it. There's just so many different avenues of who you are, <laughs> of who you are. I know that you are a student at Nate's. You're a foster parent. You work at ICYA. You've been here for, for a while now. You lead, not, I will lead, mentor in relationship with, with women. So you're a women leader, <laughs> I, I believe, because you've done that for me. And, and you know, you just, you've, you've just had so much experience in life and with your story and with your walk with the Lord and, you know, with you, your own nationality, like, you know, your own, like, journey of discovering who you are and loving yourself and and everything. I just wanted to touch base on some of those things. Like, um, how long have you been uh, a student at Nate's? What are you taking? What is your hopes with that? I am taking the Master of Arts in Intercultural Studies program. 
I believe I'm getting close to halfway done. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to gauge when you keep stopping. (laughs) I feel like I've hardly started. Um, I'm not sure what the goal is. I immensely enjoy it and, and it has helped and it has been a tool in a great resource in the whole indigenous identity. It was a path I was already on and got and and it was God that was teaching me because no person could have convinced me the things that God has taught me because it, I was indoctrinated so well about all the things that were wrong with me. There was no way that anybody else was going to convince me otherwise. And that's, that's the thing that it is. And that's what part of what, especially as the body of Christ, part of what reconciliation looks like is helping to be Jesus well so that others can, can get past those lies that have been taught so well that hold them from being what God wants them to be and was and who he created them to be. But yeah, so I'm, I'm not fully sure what will happen there, but I do believe it's a God thing. And there was, it was, it was just too strange the way it happened and the way it worked out. And, and he continues to do that. And I need his help every time that I start thinking about papers and about studying I, I ain't got nothing. <laughs> How, how's the community at Nate's? Um, very, very diverse. And because of all the trauma that comes with being told those things, because very often people have to tear down everything that those those wrong things that they were told, that told them that it wasn't okay to be brown and you got to learn how to be white and you got to, so it takes tearing down those things. And so then you kind of, how does God actually fit it? So there's a lot of deconstructing your faith. And I don't know if there's a place in the institutional church for me. I don't know if there's, and then there's some that it's like, no, actually it just, I finding my identity just drew me so much closer to Jesus and realizing that he's still good, but all that I thought was wrong with me isn't actually wrong. Or isn't actually the truth. <laughs> That's right. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a really wide, wide range of, of where people are in their journey, which sometimes can be challenging. And as followers of Christ, if we're if we are truly being Jesus and, and living by his, his example, is we need to be out with all of those people that are searching. It's not meant to happen in the walls of the church. People aren't gonna stumble in and go, Oh, do you have what I'm looking for? Like yeah. it's just not gonna happen. And so life happens in the messy places. And because of the hurt that came under the banner of, you know, saying that they were God's people, it is a mess to figure out. And so I have, I have the joy of sharing the things that God has taught me personally in my walk and, and hoping that that helps others. And I, I have the privilege of learning from those that have been doing this, are farther along in their journey, and that are also really well-educated about the histories and the things that happened and the, and the reality of what residential school was and the reality of the treaties and what they were meant to be and what were received by our people versus what happened on the other side of those that were that wrote the documents because everything happened orally and was told one way and then it was written down another yeah. way right and so of course there's things amiss and what was intended to be covenants of relationship and of friendship and of caring for each other as all of our relations all of our relations doesn't speak to blood relatives it speaks to those we are in community with Sounds a lot like Christ to me, you know, and that's what the people of this land were doing and intending when on their part of the treaties and the colonizers, the Europeans, the 
the people that were here in representation of, of the, the monarchy, it was a very different story. So there's very different intentions. Very different intentions. Anyways, school. Nate's. That's, that's <laughs> thumbs up. That's I, got, I got a thumbs up for Nate. <laughs> that's the so, way that goes. <laughs> so after, after you're done, I know it's a God thing, but what is the goal? I know you're here at ICYA. What is your role at ICYA? Are you, are you hoping to incorporate, you know, into a different role? Or like, what is, you know, what is the... Um, truth be told, I have no intentions in mind as far as I'm concerned. I know that there's a plan and a purpose and that God will reveal it as it comes. I'm the director of finance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do the books. <laughs> but over the years, you know, I've become more and more involved in, in leadership. And like you said, I speak to, to our youth and to our younger staff and try to share these things, the whole idea of culture and faith and, and it maybe looking a little bit different than, than we might've been told. And I do all of that. And so my heart has always been, I don't like bullies, <laughs> you know, like bullies. And, and so I've always, I've always spoken out. And in more recent years, I recognized with the ways that that things happen and there's a need for me to do it very well. And so when Nate's, when the opportunity arose, that was the biggest piece in my heart was I want to back things well. The reason that I believe this, the reason that I know this, that I feel this and that it's relevant is based on this, this, and this. And so for me, my kids, when I speak out for them, I don't want anybody to say, well, you know, she's just a hysterical mom or she's just no, actually, I really know a lot of things. I, I've yeah. taken the time to learn them, and I've and there is, there there is something to back it. I'm not just, I'm not just a, an emotional mother, <laughs> <laughs> or, a, or a mama bear, you know, yeah. mama bear for sure, or or somebody standing on a soapbox pretending that I know what is going on, and I will never know the full of things. And I do not speak for all of my people. It's not a singular voice, but my story and the way that I'm affected as a part of those people is relevant yes. and the different things that occurred all affect me and they will affect my children. And because we are a foster family, there's a lot more of that there. So, so ultimately the reason, the reasoning and, you know, when God began to, to open up this path, that that's why I was like, yeah, okay, I can get behind this and I'm, I'm, I'll move when you tell me to move because, because I've always, I don't want to just be on a soapbox. I don't want to just be loud. I want somebody to know, okay, well, yeah, actually she's reasonable and there's something behind it. She knows what she's talking about. You know, um, you just mentioned that you, you're a foster parent. And I just wanted to ask, like, how has that journey been for you? How did you and your husband decide to become foster parents? And what are some of the things that, I don't know, you're teaching your family from your experiences? Um, we were married young. We were married when we were 19. But... We were not virtuous kids. Um, <laughs> and so by the time we got married, we had an idea. Mm, there's probably not children in our path, naturally. We actually went to doctors and we went through that whole thing and I got mad. So when we were younger, Jason and I, we cared for a lot of, of children in our life. My, we lived with my aunt and, and we took care of her little guy from when he was born until he was about three. It's a whole different story. That's her story. But he was, he was my baby. And then there's other ones. And so when, when we discovered that we would, yeah, we were going through infertility things, I, I got really mad. And even then, I was already walking my faith. I, I was walking with Christ. And, and 
I knew that God can do more than what doctors say, but I was angry. (laughs) And I spent a month on the couch being angry and crying. And, and Jay and I, you know, we talked about things, well, there's adoption and there's fostering and there's, and my response and my anger was, we are young and we are brown and we got no money. Ain't nobody going to let us adopt a kid. There ain't nobody that's going to give us a kid. And which unfortunately is the truth. So that was like, it wasn't, don't even talk to me about that because that's not path for us. And when we talked about fostering, I said, I have too many babies already that have come and gone and have left me. And I, and I don't want to live my life doing that. I can't, I can't, I can't love them, have them ripped away from me. And about three years after we were going through that three or four years after my cousin, who was effectively my brother. So as I said, I was raised by my, my mother's parents. That's an indigenous thing. It, it was a practice, but government told us that wasn't okay. And CFS is better. Um, <laughs> but it, but culturally, everyone in my generation is my brother, my sister. Everyone in my parents' generation is my parent. Everyone in my grandparents' generation is my grandparent. So it doesn't matter that it's my grandma's sister. That's still my cookum, and you, you. It is as though she is those cookum talking. You, it just, there's no questions asked. But what would happen, and and this happened a few times in our family. That's the reason that I ended up with my mom and dad was. My mother couldn't do it, so they were like, "Okay, well, we'll, we'll do it," and that—that's just the way things went. And in then, and in their generation, often, you know, if I have three kids or four kids or whatever, and and it's hard, and my sister doesn't have any, then then your sister would take them because yeah. they don't have any, you know. And that's and that was our way because because it's community. And then that is her child. That is not, oh, they're babysitting or they're you know, or that's her child, right? And that's the way things were. And, and that's what happened for a long time. And CFS said that, that that wasn't okay. That's what kinship is about, right? So I, so I grew up knowing that family is more than those that your nucleic family, mother and father, their children, or who you're born to, you know, who you're related to by blood. Family is so much bigger than that. Then you had Christ, you had Jesus and, God, and kingdom family on top of that. And I'm like, there ain't no boundaries. <laughs> Which is, I think, it's supposed to be, right? Plus, I overlapped this generation, so there was a little extra weirdness there. <laughs> but anyway, so there was a car accident, and my cousin, who was, for all intents and purposes, he was my brother, died in a car accident. And when I watched his parents and how they desperately clung to God for their hope and their strength at the loss of their son, God used it to tell me, to show me that even if Jay and I have the good fortune of having children that come from our bodies. They are his first. They are not ours. And we are not guaranteed to have them forever. And then fostering became an option. And he has been so good. He has been so gracious. Because we've had a lot come and go. And where I think I wouldn't be able to handle loss, it isn't loss. You know, it isn't It isn't what I anticipated. It isn't what I thought. And And our family just keeps growing and growing. And some of them are in our home and some of them are not because we probably had a dozen by now. <laughs> we, have, we have five with us presently. They're there for the long haul. <laughs> <laughs> so because both Jay and I were, were raised by people other than our birth parents um, and the extended family and whatever, we both shared that understanding that family is bigger than we make it out to be. And so we teach our kids that. And so we talk, we talk about 
tell me mommies and, and birth family and that it's always going to be your family and it's okay to love them as well as us. And, and that it doesn't, you know, you're not choosing one over the other and, and that's part of you and that's who it is. It's just expanded now. You just, you just have been blessed with more. You got more people to back you and you got and more uh, people to love you. Yeah. Right. And I mean, over the years we've had opportunity to, to get to know birth families a little bit and in some, in some instances and, and have relationship with them. And, and, and I had, you know, young birth parents that are struggling and that are, that are just devastated by life circumstances and, and what happens when CFS comes and says, you can't care for this child and how that breaks them. I've had them reach out to me and share things and struggles and say, can you pray for me? And our own kids, because it is a mess and it is hard to understand. And it does leave you in a place of, how come I can't be with them? Or, you know, does that mean they didn't want that, didn't want me? Or, you know, we do our best to help them to know that there's love there, even if it's not fully what we would expect it to be. And that whatever they need it to look like, whatever they need it to be, they are ours. And it doesn't matter all the pieces and the parts and the people that come along with them. We don't think of them as anything less than our children. Conversations change as ages change. And we just always do our best to to make them, to know that they belong. Whatever it looks like may differ, but they've always got someone and they just, yeah. I just, I, I just love the love that you have for, for your children. When I first got here, I wouldn't have even known that, that you were a foster parent. Mm-hmm. You know, and just the way that you and Jay, your husband, love your children and accept them and value them. Like, it's, it, you know, and I don't know, what, as you were telling your story, I just had this thought of, like, God sets up everything that we experience in life for a purpose, for his purpose, right? And, you know, what you had to endure, the things you had to go through, um, the identity struggle, caring for, for children, having them ripped away, this and this and that, you know. But it's all for a purpose. It's all for like, you know, what you're going to give back to the kingdom, what you're going to give back to the the sons and the daughters that he just allows us just to care for for a bit. You know, like mm-hmm. that's what I how I view my children. Like I love them and I thank him for giving me them for the moment, mm-hmm. you know, because he's he's trusting me. He's trusting me to love them. He's trusting me to guide them. He's trusting me to to care for those places of identity struggle to, you know, mm-hmm. to implement the things that I've experienced into them, you know, and, and, and what I've experienced is, is the love of God mm-hmm. is Christ. Right. And, and so I see that in your story and, and your children are, are very, very fortunate and very lucky to have, you know, you as a mother and Jay as a father. And my hope is child and family um, system to have, you know, more strong, resilient, indigenous foster parents mm-hmm. that could teach the things that need to be taught because that struggle is there for indigenous people you know the struggle is there that identity struggle that that shame because it it was a seed that was planted um it they were things that were put onto us but god's so faithful he's so faithful to remove those things layer by layer and you know a lot of us we go through the process to be able to help and to be able to speak Jesus and speak that healing and speak that redemptive, redemptive power of, of who he is in our, our identity. Um, before we end, uh, what are some pieces of hope you can share with the listeners that reconciliation is happening? 
conversation is happening. It's a small thing, but it's not a small thing. I think, you know, it's painstakingly slow, and that can be frustrating. But God is not content to for it to stay hidden. And he's shining light on things. And he'll teach people in their own ways, right? We're all in a different place on the journey. Like you said, the story of the children in Kamloops, what it did for you, you know, and how he used it and whatever. Everybody is different and, and it's okay. It's okay when the steps are small. It's okay when we don't know where to begin. But it's not okay to keep our head in the sand. It's not okay to be the voice that says, oh, you know, those might not really be children's bones. It might be this or that or the other, or it's exaggerated, or it's, you know, maybe they actually, it was a legit grave, or it, it, none of that matters. None of that matters. And if we spend our time trying to excuse the things away, then we're missing out, particularly as, as followers of Christ. Jesus wants us to be the one that goes and picks people up and, and takes them so that they can have the care that they need to find healing. He doesn't want us to be the neighbor that crosses the street to the other side and leaves them there. I don't see him. I don't. He doesn't want us to pretend we don't see the hurt and the brokenness. He wants us to be the one that picks them up and puts them on our donkey and takes them to the inn and says, here's money. Take care of them. But really, we have a part in healing. And my hope is in Jesus. God is clearly doing a work and he wants healing for the nations. And that things are being stirred and there's conversation happening. Here's my hope. What word of encouragement would you like to share and leave us with other Indigenous listeners? I, I just keep coming back to the, the truth that we are intentionally, purposefully made exactly as we are. And, and it took time. It says in Psalms that we were knit together in the womb. God took the time to put us together stitch by stitch. And he doesn't make mistakes. And he wants us to love ourselves and see us as he sees us. Things begin there with seeing and knowing that, that we were created good on purpose for a purpose. Amen. <laughs> Thanks for joining, Jen. Thanks for having me, Melina. <laughs> Until we meet again. Thanks for listening to the Journey with Care podcast, where paths connect over real-life stories and honest conversations. We hope you continue to join us on this journey of faith, reconciliation, and loving our neighbor. Be sure to like, follow, and share. Special thanks to host Melvina Gabosch, ARC podcast engineer Johan Heinrichs, and donors who help make this show possible. Journey with Care is an initiative of Care Impact, a Canadian charity dedicated to connecting and equipping the whole church across Canada to effectively journey in community with children and families in hard places. Learn how Care Impact is transforming the way churches engage with child welfare with our Care Portal technology and academy training. To support this podcast or to learn more about us, go to careimpact.ca or click the link in the show notes. We're so glad you are part of this journey with us as we journey with care, even in the messy. Until next time.